This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries. Eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, welcome to episode 143 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. I'm Tracy. And this is our last episode before we leave for Houston, so we thought we would do a nice long one for you. Just like our drive. <laughs> Like, I'm already, like, going sighing because I know how long my drive is going to be. But it's going to be fun. We're going to make it fun. It is going to be fun. Yeah. Obviously, we want to give a big shout-out to all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thank you guys and gals for what you do. Absolutely. Praying for you. Thank you for keeping us safe. We're probably a little late on, on this, but... Uh, Sorry. Tank, we had somebody write us from uh, Tinker Air Force Base, and they wanted us to give a big shout-out to the military brats that are mm-hmm. past and present because it probably doesn't get mentioned enough how much they go through a lot of oh, traveling a lot of changing yeah. schools oh, gosh. Um, but they were doing something out there where they were wearing purple every friday but yes. i think that was during the course of april but even though we're past that event it still goes without saying that Absolutely. you guys need some recognition as well yes we respect you and appreciate all that you are doing and i want to give a special shout out before we uh, get into some other stuff to darren and laura they're in Dublin, Ireland, and big fans, and I promised them we would give them a shout-out. Hey, guys. Thank you. From Ireland. That means so much. We want to go to Ireland, so if we ever get over that way, maybe we can hang at your crib. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and hopefully there's not any, you know, damn little leprechauns or something running around. Those things freak me out. Dude, I hope there is. I hope there is some leprechauns up in there. Whatever. Yeah. But... Um, we appreciate you guys listening from there. It means a lot to us, for sure. We could go to the Hellfire Club. Yeah. All right. Obviously, we like to do this every show. We wish we didn't have to do this. Absolutely. But if you're struggling, if you're suffering uh, with depression, if you're just having a rough time getting through life, a uh, rough time getting through some days, just remember there is hope out there. There are people who want to talk to you, who are willing to talk to you. You can contact us. We've had a couple of people reach us uh, on Instagram this mm-hmm. week. We've had people reach us through Instant Messenger and just straight through the group. Um, and like I said, now we've given out our personal cell phone numbers mm-hmm. a couple of times, and I believe they're on the website. Yeah, absolutely. Along with our email. Because, so, you so, know, we have those days ourselves. So absolutely. don't be shocked if we don't reach out to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, say, hey. you, you, you might regret ever calling us. <laughs> yeah, I get that. But, but listen to what my day was like. Oh, no, yeah. I'm just kidding. No, we, we would never do that. Our days are rough, too. But that is a fact that we go through the same type of things that mm-hmm. you guys do. So that's why we realize the importance that sometimes just talking about it will make you feel better. More yeah. times than not. Oh, that'll absolutely. Be the case. So contact us if you want to join our group, Hillbilly Horror Stories group on Facebook. Over 3,000 strong, getting bigger every day, and it's just a giant support group. Even, Amazing. Even if 
you don't say anything, there's enough positive going on where I promise you, you will feel better about things, even if you don't talk to somebody in there. Just watch what goes on and mark my words. It will make a difference. And I would like to ask you guys to uh, say a little prayer for us on our journey next week. It is a long drive, and uh, we are looking so forward to meeting everybody. Like, we cannot even stand it. We cannot wait. But if you guys could keep us in our prayers or in your prayers um, on our travels, we would appreciate that. All right. And if you need to contact the Suicide Hotline, one 800 275-8255 in America, 741-741 is the text line. Yes. And we've got some, uh, after this these stories, we've got some updates on the Houston show. So if you are coming, uh, some I might have some stuff about parking and uh, food and all that there. So, oh, wonderful. So we'll talk about that after the fact. Now, right after the Patreons and everything, we have an awesome guest tonight. I know some of you aren't really into the interviews. This is one you're definitely going to want to hear. This is from a, a gentleman by the name of Jim Bruton, and he had a near-death experience that lasted a week, and he tells us all about that. And this isn't just some run-of-the-mill uh, person just, you know, well, who's this guy? This guy, trust me, when we get into it, you probably have seen him on TV, if you paid any attention during the uh, Iraq War or any of that stuff going on. Um, but when you hear all of his accomplishments, you'll see why his story stuck out to me. All right, let's jump into this. I posted on Facebook a few weeks ago that we were looking for some more show topics that we haven't done yet. And somebody actually, there was a bunch of good good answers on yes. there. Somebody wrote, are you running out of stuff to talk about? That's a tricky question. We're never running out of stuff to talk mm-hmm. about, but there are so many things that, that we sometimes don't know about. that so many things we don't know about, and then also so many things that you just your mind escapes you. It's like, oh yeah, I forgot all about that. Right. So sometimes it's good just to get. I mean, if we got the access to have six thousand people to pick their brains, why wouldn't you? That's why. Yeah. Remember, who wants to be a millionaire? Yeah. That's why that works so good when you could pull the audience. You know, mm-hmm. because. The majority of people out there are going to have good answers. And, and same thing here. have been giving us a lot of good feedback. So like I said, there was a bunch of good topics that, uh, and we're definitely going to cover a bunch of those. Destiny uh, Tenwald, though, she gave a list of about 7,000 places in Michigan, I think. <laughs> and it was like, I kept hitting more and more and more Aww, and more. Thank you, doll. But it got me thinking that it's been a while since we've done one of those, like, city or state themes Mm -hmm. and uh, i I know we did louisville where we did all the haunted places in louisville and then we did detroit one time we've done new orleans savannah but um it's been a little bit and we really haven't done michigan i think san antonio might have been the last one Mm -hmm. we did but we really haven't done michigan so i thought we would use some of destiny's suggestions and we're going to give you an all michigan episode sounds great now before we even get into the first story, I thought it was cool. So Tim Mays, longtime mm-hmm. listener of the show, he we don't get to talk as much as we used to. Back in the early days when mm-hmm. we had a lot more time, there was some listeners out there that you guys know we talked on a regular basis, like every day. Yeah. And it's harder to do these days, and it's nothing personal, obviously. It's just tough mm-hmm. uh, time-wise. And I hadn't really talked to Tim very much in the past six months, eight months or so. And I'm sitting down, I'm writing the stories out for this. So I got Michigan stories. Well, Tim lives in Michigan. He's right, mm-hmm. right outside of Grand Rapids. And 
Tim starts telling me, I'm like, hey, you'll like this. We're, we're, you know, he just pops up on my instant messenger as I'm writing the show out. And we're doing three stories tonight from Michigan. Well, as I'm writing the one story, and it's about the Ada Witch. Mm-hmm. And Ada's a township in, in Michigan right outside of Grand Rapids. I didn't know where it was. Never heard of it. Never heard of it until uh, the suggestion here was given to us. And so I'm writing the story out. And the main reason I chose it is because my mom's name is Ada. Mm-hmm. So I thought, how can I not do this? Right. So Tim, out of the blue, messages me. And we're, we're sitting there talking back and forth. I'm like, hey, we're, we're doing all Michigan stories this week. And he's like, you know, hey, I got this book when I was a kid that was all about haunted places in Grand Rapids, which Grand Rapids supposedly is like the whole damn town's haunted. Mm-hmm. There's like several stories in Grand Rapids. And he was telling me, hey, I had this book when I was a kid, and that's what piqued my interest in the paranormal and all this. And I'm like, yeah, well, we're doing the story on this and that. And I said, and we're doing a story on the Ada Witch. And wouldn't you know, Tim says, I live in Ada. Oh, no way. And I, that's what I said. And he's like, so he even sent me like a little thing where he was at on Google Maps to mm-hmm. show uh, all the streets and everything right there where he lives. And they're all eight of this, eight of that. But it was so funny that we hadn't talked in really in a long time. And as I'm sitting down writing a story about a city that I was even unaware of before that day, he pops on Instant Messenger, and he just happens <laughs> to live in that exact little city. That is so bizarre. What are the odds of that? That is awesome. It's just meant to be. That's all. That's what that means. So I thought it was cool. Very cool. So the first story that we're going to talk about is on a haunted orphanage. Okay. And I know, and we're all over the map on these three stories, okay. so I tried to pick some, some different stuff. So it was built in the early 1900s in Marquette, Michigan. It was originally called the Holy Family Orphanage, and obviously an orphanage should be a safe haven for kids. It quickly gained a reputation as a dark and dangerous place for children, unfortunately, which we never do stories about good orphanages. It's always bad orphanages, Mm -hmm. so there you go. This reputation started right from the very beginning. See, there was a bishop with the um, uh, Marquette Catholic Diocese, and he petitioned that they build a new orphanage. Now, this was because there were two other orphanages in Michigan at the time, uh, at least in the Upper Peninsula part where this was, and they'd become full and overflowing uh, to capacity, so they had to do something. So the building cost about $120,000 to build, which was an astronomical amount for this time. In 1915, construction was finally complete on it. It soon saw financial dividends, though, because it was the biggest orphanage in the region, and it could hold 200 children, mm-hmm. which was huge at the time. I don't know how they made money on the kids. I don't know if it was mm-hmm. the state gives them money yeah. or um, how that happened, but but this is where the bad reputation starts. So the orphanage was supposed to be just for white children that had lost their parents or had been abandoned by their parents. That's bad, but not unusual for the time. The first residents, though, actually came from another orphanage located in Ascennes, Michigan. And I may have butchered that name. Sorry if I did. These children were not white. They were 60 Native American children. They had been forcibly taken from their mothers. Hmm. In some cases, actually ripped from their arms. Parents why? Arms. Well, because this was, um, well, we'll get into it a little more because okay. I'm getting ready to get it. But this was, we've talked about this before on the show when we were talking about the uh, schools out in Arizona, New Mexico and stuff like that. 
to where they basically were trying to strip these kids of their heritage. They wanted to do away with the Native Americans, so it's easiest to take take them when they're little, put them in schools and stuff like that, and then basically teach them Christianity and all that stuff, and, and basically just take the heritage straight away from them. Terrible. So... These children were adopted out to white families for that reason. Obviously, the purpose was to strip these children of their heritage and start thinning the herd, so to speak. So all 60 of these children were watched over by eight nuns and ninja. (laughs) He heard nun. I guess he thought it was ninja. (laughs) So they're watched over by eight nuns. Once the orphanage was fully up and running, stories and allegations of abuse started to leak out. Now, from what was being said, these children were suffering at the hands of the nuns. <gasps> what? The days were filled with church, schooling, and chores. That wasn't the bad part. Children at the time, uh, you know, they had grown, you know, from the mm-hmm. time they were little, they had now by this time grown up to be elderly people. And they really wouldn't speak about their time at the orphanage when they were little, except to say that the nuns were cruel and inflicted uh, unsettling punishments to the children. Why so they, are the they, nuns like they're supposed to be loving? I've heard horrible stories about nuns throughout all of these stories that we do. Like the nuns that were killing all those kids over in Ireland. Hmm. Just, I know we talked about Ireland earlier, but I mean. Yeah. So there were stories of children being beaten to death or left outside in the freezing cold. Um, and you know how cold it gets up in Michigan. Yeah, in that's terrible. One of the stories is that one of the little girls went outside to play during a blizzard. She had been told not to go outside. She did it anyway. Okay, that was on her. Yeah. Well, (laughs) she stayed out too long. She wouldn't bundled up properly. And uh, the nuns went out to find her. Took them a while, but they eventually found her. But unfortunately, the little girl, she caught pneumonia and she died. To teach the other kids a lesson, to give a warning... The nuns put the dead girl's body on display for all of them to see, much to their shock no, they didn't. and horror. They did not. They did. A funeral was then held later in the basement. Was she froze? Like, I mean, was they put her on display being froze? or? Well, I mean, I, no, because she'd already caught pneumonia and died. So, oh. so that, she died after she... They, okay. That's so terrible. Another story mentions a boy who either drowned or was beaten to death, one or the other. And the nuns stored his body in the basement in an attempt to cover it up. Don't they know God's watching? (laughs) Do they not understand this? The final group of orphans that left um, this place was in 1967. And they were a group of Cuban refugees from Fidel Castro's dictatorship that had uh, moved up there. In the 1980s, the building became abandoned. And the owners uh, lived out of state. And he eventually went bankrupt. So in the late 2017, it was purchased and remodeled and is now Grandview Apartments. 56 apartments with a spectacular views of Lake Superior. Now, paranormal-wise, paranormal investigators love this place. This is a nearby college, and a bunch of students also like to come up here because they love the place. So mm-hmm. obviously, it was before the apartments, it was a big vacant hangout which is the way Waverly used to be back in the day. So many of them would actually go out there at nighttime just hoping for an experience. One student snuck in with some friends, and she saw an empty baby carriage roll across the floor. 
Several people have reported hearing children cry in the lobby where the little girl was left on display. Aww. So we mentioned the basement earlier and the nun supposedly hiding a little boy down there. There's a medical table that was down there and many have, uh, I guess, observed a green orb kind of encompassing and circling it like it's it it was all the way like the like the the medical table was like in the middle of the orb oh you know like it was a giant bubble or something Mm -hmm. with the in the middle of it or something the table in the middle so so it was like hovering over it no it was like the whole thing it was like a a giant bubble the orb was like a giant bubble and the table was in the middle of it oh my gosh it's like totally encompassed the whole thing now, local residents would see lights flying all around the outside of the building after dark with no logical explanation since there was no electricity out there. Local mediums say that there were, they were overcome with a freezing blast of air and a deathly smell that made them vomit. Oh, man. So what's your thoughts on that? My thoughts is that is horrible. Those nuns are terrible. And wonder why, though... Was the was the orb like there a long time, or just would appear? I think it would just appear. Oh, sometimes gosh. you would see it, sometimes you wouldn't. And that's and let's keep let's keep in mind before we start blasting these nuns that we don't know that all these are true stories. Well, we know yeah, those that's are the, true. I mean, it, that's horrible. Yeah, but we don't know that's true. Well, I would I would hope that that's not true. But I have had a couple of nuns slap me on the wrist with a ruler, and that hurt. Yeah, I went to Catholic school. Trust yeah. me, I've been smacked a few times mm-hmm. with some rulers. They yeah. like them knuckles. Oh, yeah, they do. All right. So let's move along to the next story. Mm-hmm. Our last one's a long one. Okay. This is the story of the Ada Witch. It's in that little community called the uh, Ada Township. And obviously, like I said, I chose the story because it was my mom's name. So. Yeah. I thought it was a no-brainer. This story is an urban legend that goes all the way back 150 years. That's back when Tracy was a baby. (laughs) It's been a while since you've done one of those. (laughs) I thought you were slipping. Or that you love me. Don't get crazy. (laughs) I love your old ass. Oh, thanks. (laughs) It's a tale of infidelity, murder, and paranormal experiences. So this is the story, obviously, of the Ada Witch. We said that. But it's funny because my mom would always dress up like a witch every Halloween. Did she really? Yeah. Every Halloween. She never changed it up? Nope. <laughs> so I'm not going to lie. Just seeing those two words together kind of made me smile Aww. when I saw Ada and Witch. Because, Aww. All right. That's so nice. Paranormal investigators and historians and journalists have been trying to prove or disprove this story for decades. So the story started back in the late 1800s. There was a married woman... She was having an affair. Her husband suspected that she was messing around, so he decided to kind of lay low, watch, see what was going on. One night, she snuck out of the house, and he carefully followed her out to the woods inside Sidemen Park. Wait, she went into the woods? Yeah. Oh. There he catches her with her lover. Oh, gosh. Awkward. He goes berserk. And he kills her right off the bat. I mean, just straight to it. Not even, no time to argue, not what are you doing, just boom. Then it's the dude's turn. They start fighting. This was a a battle, though. She didn't go down as easy as his wife did. You take that however you want to. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, 
they both caused significant injuries to each other and both died right there on the spot. Stop. They both did? Yep. So for the last century and a half, there have been sightings of a female apparition near Finley Cemetery and along many of the streets that surround the cemetery. This cemetery is supposedly where all three were buried. Like in the same cemetery? Yeah. She's seen wandering a road by the cemetery called Two Mile Road. I'm going to speculate how that story got its name. (laughs) It's funny, in the next story that we're going to do, it actually mentioned the two-mile road in there, too, in the research I did. So I don't know if it's the exact same two-mile road or what. But I bet it is. Footsteps are also heard on the um, con- Conservation Avenue by hunters that are out there. Sometimes, oftentimes, hunters say well, they have been tapped only to turn around and find nobody there, like tapped on the shoulder. Mm-hmm. She's also been seen on Honey Creek Road, which is where her body was found, according to the legend. Now, all of these sightings all say the exact same thing as far as what they see. A woman dressed in a long white or blue dress with long flowing hair. Julie Wiley is a uh, a local there. She actually had an experience. She was driving home from work on Bailey Drive. She was coming up on the crest of the hill, and she said right there sitting in the middle of the street was a woman that had long blue dress on. It was... She said she was waving her arms uh, like, you know, she was trying to flag somebody down. And, you know, as if she was saying, help me, help me. You know, she was mm-hmm. mouthing something yeah. that looked like she was saying, help me. Or at least that's the way Julie saw it. So Julie calls her boss up. The boss said, oh, my gosh, you just saw the Ada witch. So that was her little experience. She had no clue about the legend until she saw it. Okay, I have a question, though. How was she on Honey Creek Road when the I thought the killing was on Two Mile Road? Well, they've seen her wandering around Two Mile Road, but she was actually found on Honey Creek Road. And my guess is that since all this happened supposedly back in the woods, that they probably weren't roads back then since it was 150 years ago. Mm-hmm. And now the the point where her body was found is a road now that didn't used to be. Oh, okay. Well, so that makes sense. That's, that's my guess. Okay. In 2003, a paranormal group said that the name of the Ada witch was Sarah McMillan. This is what they came up with. And there is a grave in the cemetery for a Sarah McMillan. So people travel from all over to come to that cemetery for that. Unfortunately, people do more than visit. People have vandalized and destroyed the headstone. Stupid. In, in 2005, people were selling pieces of the stone on eBay. One of the ads said, you too can own a, pe- a piece of the Ada Witch. The cemetery said vandalism has been a uh, something that happens has, has happened since Sarah McMillan's name has been connected to the Ada Witch legend. So this little small cemetery that apparently nobody ever went to, now they're constantly people come there. So Nicole Bray decided to research this legend, hoping that she would find some uh, evidence to either prove or disprove it. So she started with digging through the death ledgers of the Kent County's clerk office. Sarah McMillan's maiden name was Chilson, and she was born in New York. Now, Nicole Bray said that she doesn't think that Sarah could be the Ada Witch. The 1860 census shows that Sarah was working as a housekeeper, 
or a nanny at the time. In 1870, she married Archibald McMillan <laughs> and has two children, one years old and three years old, according to the census that year. Mm-hmm. Sarah died that year of typhoid fever. Aww. So her grave is being desecrated because someone decided to link her name with the legend, and it's obvious that can't be her just by yeah. everything that we already know. So people need to know their shit before they start destroying stuff. Pretty much. Nicole Bray said she looked at the years 1850 to 1950, looking for two or three deaths that would coincide with the legend, and none of them did. There was nobody who died mysteriously or accidentally the same day. And the closest she could find in the hundred years that she looked were two elderly people that died a week apart. Hmm. Nicole Bray did find several mistakes, though, connected to Sarah McMillan. Her first name was actually Sally, not Sarah. That's why it was so hard to find any info on her when she started looking. So she called the Ada Township to confirm that the info on Sally matched what Sarah's did, Mm -hmm. and it all completely matched. Also, Sarah's death certificate wasn't even documented until nine months after she passed away. Wow. Nicole did not succeed at proving that the Ada Witch ever actually existed at all. What she did accomplish was much more important. She was able to convince Lowell Granite Company to donate a new headstone to Sarah McMillan. Good. They even put in uh, on the uh, tombstone that she died of typhoid fever. Jeff Woodrink from Lowell Granite Company said, It's due and Sarah deserved it. Yeah. He didn't think twice about uh, uh, taking care of this when it was brought to his attention. He even made it extra thick so it would be harder to break. Good. Sarah can finally rest now in peace with a new headstone that takes away any connection she would have to the Ada Witch. Well, I'm glad they did that. I just, I don't know why people have the need to. To do that. What do you get out of that? I don't know. People are just, just so terrible. consumed with having a piece of something that's just... I mean, I can't even fathom even doing anything like that. So disrespectful. It is. Just bad. I'm glad they replaced it anyway. All right. So, so far, we've covered a child abuse and a haunted orphanage. Mm-hmm. Murder, infidelity, and a ghost that they call a witch for some reason because there was nothing in that story that would... No. Says witch. I don't know why that would be the... Just a bunch of horny people. I don't get it. (laughs) So there's no better way to end the night than a possible murder, incest, and a haunted swamp. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the quick version. We're going to get into details, but you got to hear the quick version first. Okay. In 1921, a 20-year-old woman by the name of Maida... Dudgeon married Romy Hodel. Shortly afterwards, Meta gave birth to two babies, but these two babies were fathered through incest from her brothers. Oh, man. As soon as the babies were born, they were taken to Dudgeon's barn, clubbed to death, <gasps> and buried. Stop it. Why? Uh, in why? February, in February 1922, Romy's father, David, uh, Meta's father-in-law was murdered by Meta. An autopsy in September showed that David's body had enough strychnine in it to kill a dozen men. I guess that's what you would call overkill. <laughs> a little bit. In May of 1922, Meta put strychnine in Romy's coffee. He was slow in dying, so 
Meta clubbed him with a rolling pin. <laughs> she wasn't doing it good enough, so her mom, Alice, took over and killed him with the same rolling pin. Oh, my gosh. She had her sons, Lee and Herman, take his body to a neighbor's barn and hang him up so it would look like a suicide. She and Meta even wrote fake suicide notes and tried to cover up the crime. So let's examine a few things a little closer. First of all... First of all, why'd they kill those babies? I'm still <laughs> on it. What? Why? Why did they do that? I don't know. I mean, I guess because they were incest babies and they knew there might be legitimate problems with them. Okay, well then they shouldn't have been screwing the sister. Now you gotta think of these things before you... Well, in fairness though, I don't know what she looked like. Okay. <laughs> you are crazy. If anything should have happened, his doinger should have fell off, not kill the babies. Okay. Damn it. All right, so if I can get back now. First of all, there are tons to this story. Trials, lynch mobs, confessions, accusations, mistrials, appeals, and more deaths. And um, this thing drug on as far as trial and everything to the late 1920s. So we can't cover all of it. So... I'm going to cover the important stuff, though. Okay. The Dudgeons came to Michigan in 1903 from Indiana. Charles and Alice had five children, Lee, Wilmer, Herman, Lola, and Meta. Now, you'll hear me occasionally say Meddy because that's what they called her. Her name was Meta. But just like uh, uh, her husband, he had a different name, too. They called him Doc. But I just went by their real names. So they had a sixth child. They called it Z. I swear to God. But she died at childbirth. The place they wind up in, in Michigan was called White Cloud. It, the actual part in White Cloud where they were at, it was called Big Bear Swamp at one time. And they started a ranch there, and they started raising livestock. Neighbors found it hard to get along with these people, and they started calling them the place Dudgeon Swamp instead of Big Bear Swamp just because the Dudgeons lived there and they didn't like them. The Dudgeons were one of the first to own an electric truck. And by electric, I'm sure they meant just an actual truck and not a horse and wagon. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> and they were way ahead of their time and didn't even know it. Yeah. Yeah, Tesla built it. And uh, <laughs> most of the hate was, was from jealousy uh, because they were able to buy such a big piece of land just moving her by a big piece of land that others couldn't afford. Mm-hmm. So that's probably most of it. In 1921, Meta completed eighth grade at the age of 16. That was the end of her education. She worked locally until uh, she married Romy Hodel at the age of 20 years old. She then worked at a telegraph office in White Cloud and a chair factory in Big Rapids for just a little bit. It was during this span when she gave birth to the two children that were clubbed to death and and buried. Romy was a stumper who would remove tree stumps, so it's aptly named, from people's property, which was a big deal back then. Yeah. I remember when you were in the hospital with your uh, heart attack, I watched an episode of Bonanza, and that's Mm -hmm. what a guy did. He was traveling around doing stumps. Okay. But he was also basically a serial killer. Oh, gosh. No way. Yep. Did he hide his bodies in the stumps? No, but he used explosives, and then he would just claim that the people were 
accidentally blown up because they got too close to the stumps or something. But the reality <laughs> okay. was that was how he was disposing the bodies. Anyway, so he, Romy meets the Dudgeons and Meta when he uh, bought some cedar fence posts from them and their, from their property. So it goes to where Meta's dad, Charles, he dies in, in May of 1920. Romeo and Meta got married on March 29th of 1921. Now, Romeo was very jealous. He was aware that Meta dated a man named Carl Saylor, who her brother Wilmer worked for at one point in time. So when he would ever come over to the Dudgeons and Carl Saylor was there, he would get obviously very upset and mm-hmm. the, whole, the whole family and everything, everything was just tense yeah. around that situation. So Romy's parents were having some marital problems. So his dad came to stay with him in, in, uh, while his mom continued to stay home and run a boarding house that they owned in Detroit. Now, this was January 21st of 1922. On February 4th, David Hodel died while Romy was at work in uh, Woodville, Michigan. Doctors said that it was a stroke, but then we're going to move on to May 5th, 1922. Romy takes a job that's 17 miles away. He wanted Meta to come with him because he felt like that she was messing around on him with Carl Sailors while he was away on these little jobs he was doing. So he wanted her to come live in a shack that was out there on the property. And she had went with him before and done some of these things. And she didn't like being away from her family and friends. And mm-hmm. she didn't like living in a shack. Mm. So Romy comes up to the Dudgeon's uh, farm and her brothers, Lee and Herman, were going to drive them in their truck and take all their stuff to that shack. Well, guess who was there? Carl Sailors. And Romy had a fit when he saw him there. And he started ranting and raving. And then Romy and Herman started exchanging words, which was her brother. That turned into a fist fight. Lee then, her other brother, joined in and both kicked Romy's ass. <laughs> Romy forced Meta to walk ahead of him up the road, in the rain, back to their place. The whole time talking about uh, both of them dying together. Uh, He told her that he wanted her to go to White Cloud and talk to an attorney named Harold uh, Cogger about a divorce. So Meta wrote a letter in prison while she was later there that said that Romy told her that he killed and buried a woman named Nellie Reynolds 12 years earlier. On that little trip, whether he was mm-hmm. arguing. Romy had heard that there were some men working on the road, uncovered a skeleton, and they had taken it to the local undertaker, and authorities were investigating it. That night, Romy and Meadow stayed at the Dudgeon Farm, and they slept in separate rooms. The next day, Romy decided not to work because it was raining. He went to the barn to feed the horses. Alice told him that breakfast would be ready when he got back. But he didn't return soon, so Lee, her brother, and a hired hand went to the barn and found Romy hanging by a horse harness. Meta, Lee, and Herman drove to White Cloud to notify the sheriff. So the authorities came out. They find Romy's body hung with his feet touching the ground and his knees flexed. Oh, that's weird. His lip was cut. He had a black eye. A cut over his eye and one on his cheek. And there was also mud or some type of sand on his shoulder. Nothing looked right about the situation. And he didn't get to eat his breakfast. (laughs) True. That sucks. So, 
he, well, the way they did stuff, you probably wouldn't want to eat the food well, anyway. Well, that's very true. True story. So it even looked more fishy when they go to try to put him in the car, and they're having trouble because his legs and stuff, rigor mortis has already set in, which meant it probably didn't happen two hours ago or an hour ago or mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. like they were showing, because the legs were so stiff they were having trouble getting him in the car. Oh, gosh. Roma, Romeo and Meta had been married for about 14 months at this point. Mm-hmm. So then they go out and they do the uh, the autopsy. And this shows that the cause of death was not hanging, but a blow on the back of the head two inches below the right ear. The blow caused instant death, according to the, to the uh, postmortem. Romy was buried on May 7th, 1922 at Goodwill Township Cemetery. Now, because of the bad blood between the families... Uh, the hotels and the dungeons there. The sheriff, Noble McKinley, he had to frisk anybody that came to the, to the, the funeral? funeral for weapons. May 8th, the hired hand that found Romy, we told you we went up with her brother Lee and the hired hand, his name was Robert Bennett. He was arrested but for the murder and then later released. No kidding. So on May 14th, 1922, Meta had Romy's body exhumed from his plot because there was a rumor that right after the funeral, somebody had came and taken the body. So they wanted to make sure that didn't happen. So they were going to exhume the body and move it, I guess, to another cemetery. But the main reason they were doing it, they wanted to make sure the body was still there. Hmm. So May 15th, the inquest was finished by the police and they determined that the suicide letter written was not in Romy's handwriting. July 30th, 1922, Lee and Herman are met on the road by 19 vigilantes. They were ordered. about to be fun happening. They ordered the men to get out of their wagon, truck, whatever they were in at the time. So Lee and Herman were separated, ropes put around their necks. They were told that they would be hung if they did not confess to the murder. One of the guys was the superintendent of the schools. His name was uh, Paul Andrews. He was a member of the lynch mob, and he says that when the rope was tightened around Lee's neck, he said he would confess. But when they loosened it, he refused. So Romy's brother tied the rope to his motorcycle, and he pulled out and not like took completely off, but just Mm -hmm. took the slack out of it. Mm -hmm. Just keep in mind, at this point in time, they've got a rope picture that they got a rope around her neck and then it's over a tree branch yeah so it was just a lot of slack so when he takes off now it's tight Mm -hmm. they're not lifted off the ground yet but they're feeling it oh i'm sure or at least he was well this was enough to scare everybody else that was involved there because apparently on his motorcycle he had a suicide clutch and any attempt to try to stop him would cause his foot to slip and the bike would have taken off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, that would not have worked out well. <laughs> but this was also enough to get Lee to confess. So the confession said that Robert Bennett killed him. And he forced them to help hang him up. That they wouldn't part of the murder just yeah. hanging up. So Robert was arrested for a second time. He was kept in a cell with no cot, no chair. He had to sleep on the floor with only a blanket, and he only got four meals a week. Oh, dang. 
Lee Herman and Wilbur Dudgeon were later arrested at their home. Alice met his mom and the boy's mom there. They asked for police for protection for their family. And on August 1st, state police take Alice, Meta, and her brothers in for questioning. August 8th, 1922, Meta confessed to poisoning her father-in-law and murdering her husband. August 10th, her mother Alice also confessed. Alice and Meta said that they were bothered by ghosts until the time of their confessions. August 24th, Alice Lee, Herman, Meta, and Robert Bennett all reputed their confessions and said that they lied. September 14th, David Hodel was exhumed. That was his, um, Romy's dad, mm-hmm. her father-in-law. That is where they found the strychnine that was enough to kill mm-hmm. several men. October 10th to 25th, 1922, Meta's trial started, and Meta was convicted and was in jail until she was um, released on August 8th, 1949, after 26 and a half years in prison. She died a few years after her release. On July 26, 1923, Lee Dudgeon was found guilty for basically complicity in the murder. He was released after three years. December 7, 1922, Alice was found guilty of first-degree murder. She got life, and she eventually got out of jail, but she died in 1933, or 1937. So, everybody ended up dying, but nobody got the death penalty. Nobody got, Mm -hmm. but it was a complete mess. And now, as far as the paranormal stuff, uh, just a bunch of people. It's really not anything major paranormal-wise. Mm-hmm. That was just a cool story. But supposedly around Dudgeon Swamp, you hear all kinds of sounds. You see apparitions of people. Um, all of their bodies, the dungeons and stuff, are all kind of buried uh, right there in, in that area in that local cemetery. So you can find their... I think they're all in like a vault. Mm-hmm. Like all of them are in a vault. Wow. But that's a jacked up story. Yeah, that is jacked up. And they was probably tired of getting dug up again and again. Yeah, we don't want to get dug up where the hotels. <laughs> <laughs> well, still, it's messed up. Can you imagine having to do that? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, that's crazy. That's a crazy story. My uncle's had to do that. Remember he told us that story about how that was like the worst smell ever is when they had to exhume that, that body because mm. remember he, he works up digging graves and digging up graves at that uh, pauper cemetery so they were all but they had to con- exhume a body for being and it was one that had been there for like a year and a half or something I'm like so, that I'm so surprised there's still a smell well it's I mean, like, you know I guess it just depends on the situation oh my gosh terrible yeah, that's a crazy story so. better not find no strict nine up in here <laughs> all right so, let's go ahead and do our patrons and our iTunes reviews, and then we've got an awesome interview. One of the best we've ever done. This really isn't an interview as much as it is a story, because Jim Burton, we told you briefly about this earlier, Jim Burton, this is a highly accomplished gentleman that had a near-death experience, mm-hmm. and he's going to tell us all about what he experienced, and I just found this completely fascinating. So I pretty much just, but I mean, this guy has won Emmys for mm-hmm. working on National Geographic. You probably, if you watch any of the uh, uh, stuff going on in Iraq during the war from CNN or CNBC, you, yeah, you probably him saw him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as you see the pictures we post, you'll get that. Yeah, so, it's quite an honor having him aboard. Yeah, let's go ahead and do the, these real quick, and we'll get to that. 
So what do we got today? All right. On our iTunes reviews, we have Shalina Robertson, Maddie P., Jordan Cox, CC1976, Leah Bella 1, Disney Girl 24, Peyton Ressler, Pitbull Mommy, Michelle G., and BB. Thank you guys for your nice reviews. It was awesome. And what we got Patreon-wise this week? We have Barbara Niles Barrett, Michelle L., Bailey Oxier, Jim Bratton, Bruton. Bruton, I'm so sorry. And Caroline Ham. Thank you, guys. You're amazing. I was going to say, Jim is our special guest tonight, so we might want to get his yeah, name no, right. Yeah, well, I didn't. <laughs> I, look my, I made my you look like an A. Sorry. Sorry, Jim. Love you. But thank right. you, guys, for your support. We really appreciate it. So real quick, I want to talk about Houston. Um, Houston. Houston means that I wonder. Don't you know that song? I do know that song. Oh, you don't like it? It's country. No. Oh, I don't whatever. Like it. Anyways, um, so just a reminder: there will be food there. Both this is at a restaurant. It's mm-hmm. going to be in a private event space at the restaurant. It's a Cisco Salsa Company, so it's a Mexican food, but it's got like a California influence. Nice. I can't wait. And there's going to be an enchilada buffet there, so it's like eighteen dollars, <sighs> but it's pretty much. You get the buffet, and then it's all you can eat chips, the whole and drinks and stuff the whole day. Nice. So everything's there. So just keep it come come hungry. Yes, because please. they're they're giving us this place at a really good deal. So you mm-hmm. expecting you guys to eat? So yeah, you don't have to eat, but no, you don't have to. But, but it, why just, wouldn't you? Just know the food's going to be there, and the yeah. food's supposed to be really good. It's one mm-hmm. of the reasons we picked this place. Also, they said parking could be tough around there. I'm going to send out a map. Uh, I got to get with her tomorrow, but she's going to give me a map. There's a church like a block away. That allows them to use that, and that's where they're advising for, you know, it's an easy place to park. You don't have to park there. Yeah. But but it's just if you're looking, that's going to be the easiest spot. And I'll get that, and I'll send it out to anybody that bought tickets in a couple of days because I don't remember the name of the church. But she's going to send me a map, and I'll send that to uh, Eventbrite. So everybody bought tickets, you'll get something showing the map. Oh, good. All right. Let's do this interview because I'm telling you, this is – this is really cool. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of fun doing this one. I'm excited about this, and like I said, it's it's uh, it goes back. It's a near death experience story, but this is a twist that I had never heard from any near death experience mm-hmm. story. So, and you know, and I'm going to say this: a lot of people they'll hear some of these stories and they're skeptical right off the bat, and I get that. I get that. But you'll hear in this interview we bring up a lot of the things that. Our fact of the things that this gentleman has done in his lifetime leading up there, very accomplished, very accomplished mm-hmm. in several different ways. And uh, I've researched a lot of this stuff. Everything I looked at, what he said was completely accurate. It's mm-hmm. all stuff you can look up online and find out. So that just makes it a very credible story to me when you start looking at that. The other thing is, he's not trying to sell anything. No. He don't have a book. He don't have. Uh, he's not trying to come lecture somewhere. This was just something I convinced him to come on and tell a story. Uh, so, you know, there's no ulterior motive there. And I think that goes a long way in what you can believe and mm-hmm. not believe. So. Yes. All right. Well, let's give Jim a, a listen. Right after this quick break. All right. So we're getting ready to make our trip to Houston. 15-hour mm-hmm. drive. God, is it really 15 hours? 15 hours. So that means we're going to be listening to a lot of music and a lot of podcasts. Make the time go back quick. Yes, we will. And I can tell you the very first one we're going to be listening to. 
We're going to be binging on one of the newest shows by Parcast, which you know they've got so many good shows. One of the newest ones is Extraterrestrial. So you know as well as I do that there's no doubt that there's an existence of extraterrestrial life because it's been captured in our imaginations and for generations. Mm-hmm. And those who claim to have encounters believe they saw what they, you know, what happened to yeah. them. They, they believe what went on. But what does the evidence really show? Well, every week, the Podcast Network's new podcast, Extraterrestrial, examines these stories with a critical eye, analyzing possible scientific explanations, and determining what really may have happened in those situations. Extraterrestrial takes a deep dive into both close encounters and potential government cover-ups, looking to answer whether or not we really are alone in this universe. Well, that'll be an interesting listen on our long drive. So you can listen also to the first episode of Extraterrestrial on the abduction of Barney and Betty Hill right now. Oh, my God. I thought you were going to say Barney and Betty Fife or Rubble. Uh, no. <laughs> no. Look for upcoming episodes in the Roswell cover-up, the U.S. Air Force's Project Blue Book, and a secret committee formed by President Truman uh, to facilitate recovery of alien spacecraft called Majestic 12. Ooh, I cannot wait. So, new episodes come out every Tuesday. So oh, every Tuesday. Every Tuesday. So, that means on Tuesday we're leaving, so yep. there'll be an extra episode coming out that day. Awesome. Search and subscribe to Extraterrestrial wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, that's E-X-T-R-A-T-E-R-R-E-S-T-R-I-A-L. Or visit podcast.com slash extraterrestrial to start listening right now. Give it a listen, guys. All right, guys, I have an unexpected treat for you. And I say unexpected because this kind of fell right in my lap. Uh, we did, you know, some stories and in, in involving near-death experiences and stuff in the past. And recently, we talked to Shelby Lenora from uh, Heckle and Shot Podcast. And I was asking her some questions about the afterlife. And I get an email uh, from a gentleman I had never spoken to before, a gentleman by the name of uh, Jim Bruton. And... I automatically start listening to what he's saying and we're conversing back and forth. And he tells me that he's had uh, a week long near death experience. And as we start getting into his story, I'm completely flabbergasted at this gentleman's history. He's done things that I can honestly say out of everybody we've ever had on the show, he may be the most accomplished uh, from all aspects of life, and I was completely fascinated. I was completely flattered that he listens to the show, and I was like, Jim, I've got to have you on the show. Would you come on and talk about this? It's so fascinating. So with that being said, Jim obliged. Jim Bruton, welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. Hi, Jerry. How are you? I can't complain. I'm excited. I've, I've been on pins and needles all day long to hear you verbalize what's going on. I've read the stuff, but now I get to hear it with my own ears, and I know it's going to be a lot more intriguing than what I even read. So I'm well, excited. Quite a nice introduction. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate it, and it's so wonderful to be with you tonight. Jim, like I said, I was I was flattered that you listened to the show. And, I mean, I, I know people are people. I mean, you've got likes and like everybody else, but, I mean – to me, people will understand as we get into your history why it, it's such a big deal uh, to me. But let's start a little bit with your history. So you meet a young lady in college, and her dad 
does some work for National Geographic, and that kicked off a lot of different stuff for you. Tell me a little bit about that time and what you ended up doing. Absolutely. In a way, it starts off even you know earlier when I was a child. I'd sit there as a, as a little kid watching Wild Kingdom on our black and white television in a very middle class home in Jacksonville, Florida. And I remember just wondering, how do you do that for a living? You know, and then I happened to meet this uh, wonderful young woman in college and found out what her dad did. And after dating a while, I said, you know, does he ever need any help? And she said, I'll ask him. And he said, sure. So <laughs> off we went to Africa. Uh, but, you know, learning to make wildlife films is a, a big process. I mean, you have to learn how to fix Land Rovers. You have to learn how to conserve water. You have to learn so much about animal behavior. Oh, yeah. And then there's the camera and how to actually shoot you know, good footage that people will want to see. So it's a it's an incredible experience that uh, pulls on every aspect of you. And we went off to Southwest Africa, and that was back in 1980. Um, and long story made short is we lived there off and on for quite a few years. And uh, as a country with only two people per square mile, and the name Namibia means the big nothing, it really is. Mm-hmm. Um but it was a, it was just a, a dream to to live there, and I, I feel so fortunate. Now you actually had your own safari company for a while, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, after a while, we realized, you know, there's not much difference between bringing people to the story or taking the story to the people. So for a while there, um, I would say that uh, getting a wildlife special on major network television, let's say before cable really took off, uh, was tough. You know, you were really competing against people like, you know, my future parents-in-law. And so we, I guess, sort of thought, well, how do we take all our same skills and translate them over into something else? And and that's where we had our safari business. And and that was a lot of fun, too. Now, am I right in understanding that you won an Emmy with your work with National Geographic? Yeah, I did. Um, It was a strange thing. Uh, There were these sand dunes in Namibia, and the country is a geologist's dream, first of all. You know, I think the diamond industry was actually born there. Um, But the backside of these dunes, uh, anytime the wind would blow over them, the sand uh, crystals or whatever would cascade down, and they would start to make this noise that was like a low roar kind of sound like b-52 or b-25s coming over the horizon in world war ii or something it was just the weirdest thing and the national geographic had sent some people out there and they couldn't figure out how to record it and i figured out how to record it and that's the strangest got to be one of the strangest categories for an emmy you know figured out how to record sand dune noise but uh (laughs) i'll take it (laughs) hey hey, an emmy's an emmy that's what right i guess so yeah so Doing your your filming and stuff like that, so you, you're you're accustomed to being behind the camera and everything now, and and in front of the camera. Now you move on, and you start doing some work. You're 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 all over. You're on seven different continents at one point in time. You've made it to every continent. How impressive is that? I mean, I I can't imagine being somewhere like Antarctica. It's great. It's great. Well, that's it's an interesting linkage from going uh, from one set of circumstances to the other, just like you've described. And that's um, one time I was on a sand dune again, 300 miles from anybody. My nearest neighbors were whoever was flying in a passenger jet five to seven miles above my head. Um, 
And all of a sudden, all these uh, four-wheel drive vehicles pull up on the sand dune. Like I said, I'm there trying to film a sunset. And I recognize the ranger leading him. I said, who's that? He goes, it's a Disney film crew. They're here to scout a location. And I watch him unpack a bunch of cases, and they unfold this uh, sort of metalized, flexible satellite dish. Uh, and then they pulled out a telephone handset and started talking on it. And I said, what's that? And they go, that's a satellite telephone. And I looked at it and thought, huh, has anybody ever been able to push video over that? And they go, we don't know. I said, I'm going to figure out how to do it. So I came back to the States and talked to um, like Bell Laboratories and the people who made the satellite telephone and told them, you know, here's who I am. Here's what I do. And I want to be able to go live in, say, into the Internet uh, from waterholes or jungles or whatever all over the world right into the Internet for kids. And they thought that was a pretty cool idea. So I uh, was able to prove to them that the system worked and they supported me with satellite time, satellite phones, all kinds of equipment and expertise. And it's amazing how that jump, that leap of faith, if you will, um, is what took me to all seven continents. Um, I went you know, to Antarctica several times. I've circumnavigated Antarctica Um been to the, uh, the North Pole and, and all the polar regions up there. Uh, I field produced the Titanic for Discovery.com, for which we won a, a Yahoo Site of the Year award. And then um, Mount Everest, I was a lecturer at Yale University School of Medicine, integrating my system into these strange medical devices you could wear or swallow that are now up on the space station. And somewhere in here, I attracted the attention of the military and the government, and and that led to some interesting conversations as well. I got to be honest with you. When we first started talking, I I mean, the name didn't ring a bell at all. And then I went on the website, and I saw pictures of you in the Middle East. And I'm like, I know exactly who this guy is. (laughs) I mean, I remember because like everybody else, you know, during Desert Storm, during um, Rocky Freed, everything that went on in the Middle East back in the eighties, we were glued to our TV. And I mean, you were, you were a war journalist on, on NBC, CNN, uh, MSNBC from, you know, from Baghdad. Tell me a little bit about what it's like to be in a situation like that, where you're in a combat zone. <laughs> Well, it's really interesting. Uh, Back when we first went to Africa, as I mentioned in 1980, there was a war going on between South Africa and Angola. And where we were, Namibia, it was right in the middle. It was in a tug of war between the two. And so we got really used to carrying machine guns and watching out for landmines and looking out for terrorists and all that. And I never really had a problem with it. Um, But it was really interesting in the war zones – Definitely saw a lot of action. And I one time I was in this firefight for about three and a half hours. And, I, and now, again, I'm not pitching myself as some macho guy. I am not that guy, okay? Um, but I remember just sort of feeling one with the universe. I mean, I mean, shrapnel is hitting the armored personnel carry all around my head. A rocket-propelled grenade goes skipping by my feet. And I just remember feeling... Okay. And I talked to a friend about that later, a mentor, and he actually said something really cool. He goes, I know why. And I go, why? He goes, because in that moment, everything is true. I said, you know, you're right. And I was embedded with the Marines. And I'll tell you, we had some of the most spiritual conversations you could imagine, not in church, but right there 
camping out in the middle of a war zone at night. I, I, I really got to love these guys. And, um, you know, hats off to all our military, but I really have a special place in my heart for the Marines. Um, so anyway, it was just about, um, you know, bonding with, with people at a, at a really basic level. And I, um, I, you know, of course I, believed we were there to do good work. You know, Saddam Hussein wasn't anyone's favorite person. Um, and I mean, we could always, you know, 2020 hindsight in terms of how, you know, we've managed things maybe going out, but I know our hearts were in the right place. And I do think overall the people were better off. Um, but working in that area, I, I did enjoy it. I really felt like I could serve our country and, several ways you know i did do some quiet work uh with the military and the government and then did the more public facing work certainly to to bring the news back to uh, to you and our families here at home all right so not to make light of that situation but you eventually you you move on yeah and you're eventually going to meet a, a young lady you come back you're going to settle in connecticut you're going to meet a young lady and life it's completely different, I'm sure, from what you're used to. Seems a little more calm. That is true. I met a widow with three babies, and I said, "Wow, I guess I'll leave the war zone and I'll join the circus." And that's really, it's <laughs> really like how it's been. Um, wonderful woman. Her her uh, husband had been in the army reserves, uh, but he he died in a traffic accident nearby, and uh, her children were literally two, four, and six when I met them. And um, it's interesting, when we first met, and we met through Match.com, which is kind of cool, and she told me something on the phone just before we met. She goes, you know, I, I need to tell you I'm a widow with three babies. And she said, I can tell you're being quite, you know, really quiet about that. You're thinking about it. She said, I tell you what, just give it a try. And if it's not right for you, just walk away. And you know what? I could tell that was coming from such a place of strength. I think I started falling in love right then. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a few years later, uh, we did get married. And she she and I um, were in a relationship during uh, the entirety of my being in Iraq that year, uh, 2003. But she was really great at sort of keeping the home fires burning and staying in touch. And um, to this day, she, you know, I really say how wonderful a woman she is. So you come up with a new hobby. You, <laughs> yeah, that's you, true. You start, I, can, I can jump right into that. <laughs> so you're, um, you're building and flying reproductions of vintage aircraft. How do you get into something like that? Well, when I was little, my dad was a pilot. And I, um, you know, so we would go see any movie that was about aviation. And in, back at the time, it would probably have been like a Disney-type film or maybe a serious-type film. But there weren't that many. But I realized I had a real affinity for the really old aircraft, like um, pre-World War One and World War One. Of course, you had the, the chivalry and the daring do and, you know, the macho part of it that would have, you know, any little boy would have thought was cool. But just the, the brass, the copper, the wire, the fabric, the wood. You know, it's back when an, a, an aircraft was a piece of art. You know, it wasn't just a, a riveted tin can. It really was beautiful. And so it was the whole package for me. So I remember being a little kid just drawing picture after picture, building models and stuff like that. 
and then finally, um, you know, I, I became a pilot on my own. And when I, uh, like I said, retired from the war and was settling down, my new wife um, with the three kids, she said, well, now that you're not traveling so much, why don't you build that airplane you're always talking about? And I said, you know, you're right. And so I did. It took me eight years because um, it was a very faithful reproduction of a Fokker triplane. That's the 1917 German triplane like the Red Baron flew, except mine was in black and white stripes that I came up with, not not red. But it was um, it was a fun journey to build it. I really did enjoy the, the process of building it. And then when I flew it, I didn't really intend on flying it that day. I was just going to do a fast taxi, but it started getting kind of squirrely and so the only way to save it was to fly it and uh, ten and a half hours of flying later I sold it to an Air Force pilot who's now putting an original World War One engine in it and then I went on to build a, another airplane because I thought well I built my macho airplane now I can build the air, other airplane I've always wanted to and it, it was called a flying flea um, from 1933 it looks kind of like a soapbox derby car with a big wing behind your head and a big wing up over your head and a bmw motorcycle engine right in front of your face i mean it looks like something out of a little disney cartoon to be honest <clears throat> and um so i i um I can, I can pause there if you have any other questions because we're we're getting very near the point of our story <laughs> No, this is what we were leading up to. So I'm sitting here with bated breath, just waiting, uh, because I purposely didn't read anything after this. So we're, we're to the date now, October 6, 2016. That's when everything changed for you. So tell me exactly what happened, Jim. Well, you got that right. Um, well, this little flying flea, like I say, it's a cute-looking little airplane. I'd flown it for the very first time three days before and didn't really like the way it flew. I thought, yeah, it feels a little unstable. But because I'm a pretty good pilot, I thought I'll go out and figure out its quirks and I'll learn how to fly it. So I go out there to fly it um, again on October 6th. It was a Thursday. And um, I take off. Everything's normal come around i do a low pass over the airfield and as i'm coming back around my engine just stopped i remember just seeing my propeller kind of you know the engine coughed and the propeller stopped like a two o'clock eight o'clock position well i didn't panic i just you know started to i restarted it and it, it cranked around it didn't start up and then finally it started up but by now it's getting a little too late because i'm coming down fast in this plane it wasn't very uh, aerodynamically clean. You you cut the power and you come down fast. And it was a hilly, it was forested. I couldn't make it back to my grass strip. So the only place with no trees was a small, very small lake at a Boy Scout camp next door to the airfield. Well, the plane had a, a front that made you almost think of a boat. So I thought, well, I'll just put it down in the water. Um, so I Got it down, and I, I did overshoot the bank, though, by about 10 feet, and I crashed into all these tree trunks. So imagine hitting big, thick tree trunks at 70 miles an hour in a soapbox derby car, and you kind of have the picture. Um, I don't know how the engine, like I said, mounted right in front of my face, didn't hit me square on. That, to me, is probably a bigger miracle than anything. And there was a, a, a man fishing nearby. His name was Glenn, and he... Um, 
just happened to have a cell phone on him that day. Normally he did not. It was in his truck a half mile away, but on this day he had it. So he saw the whole thing. And he, uh, he rushed over um, to check me out and was able to keep me propped up. And uh, he called 911 and described the situation to him. And then they sent in the, the Livestar helicopter. And um, so they, you know, they got there. They pulled me out of the wreckage, put me on the helicopter and flew me up to Hartford's trauma center where, um, you know, the diagnosis was that I had ruptured both my lungs. I had broken all of my ribs, my right leg totally resembled a pretzel. And even the skin on my chin had been cut so badly and was hanging down, I wouldn't have been able to form words because I didn't have a lip up there to help form words. And I had a small hole in the bottom of my back from a battery that broke loose and you know hit me uh, projectile as a projectile at 70 miles an hour. So they, um, my wife, uh, you know, is finally is, is notified and she gets up there a few hours later to find me in a breathing machine with all kinds of tubing coming in and going out of me. And I was delirious. I mean, I would have been probably delirious anyway, but, um, I didn't know who anybody was. I didn't even appreciate my own circumstances. Um, but I was able to get out of some restraints they had me in. And so they told my wife, you know, we've got multiple days of six plus hour operations coming and we can lose him at any time between now and when we're finished. Uh, so the next week's going to be a real touch and go. So, um, we're going to put him in a, you know, a coma, medically induced coma. And she said, by all means go to it. So they did. And that's really where the story begins. Um, I guess one way of putting it is, is they, as I went to sleep here, I, I woke up somewhere else and, uh, where I woke up for the longest time after I came back, I wondered if it was like purgatory. It was deep brooding skies, you know, clouds that just like they were heavy, ready to rain, a uh, very Gothic looking landscape. And it was as if I was in a apocryphal city, kind of like, kind of like, or post-apocalyptic city. Imagine like if New York got hit by a, a nuclear bomb and this is a hundred thousand years after that, it kind of looked like that. Um, not one other living soul did I see. Um, but it's weird. There, there were two strange things right off the bat. One, I felt really sick to my stomach. And the other thing was the only thing of real interest there. It was a large, I would just guess maybe it was like four stories high, an egg shaped, for want of a better word, a sculpture. But the egg was made out of um, almost like a lattice work, as if you took uh, thin strips of metal and simply bend it in all these directions, and it was shaped like an egg. You could see through it and, and all that. So I just remember looking at it and you know, and then a wave of nausea hit me. I said, I don't think I can stand this. And when I said that, all of a sudden I was aware that all these teeny tiny little gears within that egg started spinning around. That told me somehow this thing and I are connected. And so I kind of you know, like hobbled over there, bent over in pain. And I remember looking through the open lattice work at these gears. And they were like sector gears. A sector gear you find in clock-like mechanisms. They're, they're a, a partial arc. Instead of all the way around like a usual gear, it's just a portion of a gear, if you will. It's meant to kind of go back and forth, back and forth instead of around and around. And it, 
it was interesting when I finally figured out one day why they were shaped like that. It's because it's a gear with a beginning and a middle and an end. Because as I looked at the gears, they were very, very hard to focus on. But they, I learned that they were representing events in my future. Uh, thoughts, words, deeds, whatever. It's as if I couldn't see the gear clearly, but when I looked at it, a video feed of what it represented was playing in my head. And so I, I would see these different scenes playing out, and I went, oh, wow, okay. And I remember uh, when they stopped spinning around, I don't know what made me think I could do this. I put my hand through that open latticework to sort of try and feel them. And I'm, I'm feeling them. They're They're real. But then I touched one and I got really sick. You know, that nausea like really kicked in. And by reflex, I grabbed it and I pulled it out through that open latticework and I just threw it away. And when I did that, all the gear started spinning around again. And I literally asked, what is going on now? And it's as if a voice just started talking to me in my head. And I've written that conversation down on my website and... It said, you know, you're, I said, what's going on? It said, it's recalibrating to a future that's not meant to be. And I said, where am I? I said, you're in the in-between. And I said, in-between what? And it said, everything. You're standing inside the eternity of a single moment. And I mean, this is how it talked to me. And it was like, just insane. It was amazing. And it was almost, I was almost able to get more information from what wasn't said than what was in that upon my return and and it really descending on me in rehab hospital where where I went and what happened. Um, it's like the more I dug into it and, and almost meditated on it, the more information I was able to pull from it. And I'm still doing that even even as of today, two and a half years later. It's amazing. It, it really is. Um, I mean, it, it was it was amazing. And, and at one point, you know. But the whole idea, as I learned, was I was the, I was being given an opportunity to pull out gears, to pull out events in my future. Let's say that would be to my spiritual detriment. And so, you know, in pulling out these gears, I was obviously over time I was feeling less nauseous. So I kind of put those two things together. At one point, I do remember saying, "Where are the gears that feel good?" And it said, "You're not here to feel good." And it wasn't like a, a scary thing to say. It's like, you know, you're here to do some work and you've been given an opportunity. You know, you can focus on fun later. I got it. I got it. But I do I do remember that um, at one point feeling some shame and that I said, you know, I'm I'm cleaning up my future. But my only guide is reaching kind of blindly inside this egg, just feeling around for something that causes me pain. It's not like I'm becoming a better person by having some snippet of scripture or some other moral compass. It's pain that's my guide. And I think the saying was something like, um, it's nothing compared to the crushing weight of the chains that bind you to the world. And I said, yeah, I, I guess I've got that. And I, um, I, I just, it's like every time I, you know, asked a question, I just got this, felt like incredibly wise answer that was almost hard to um, process. But I do remember that at some point in here, it said, you know, all choices have unintended consequences. Some 
are unfortunate, some are not. The pain each brings is is your guide. And that um, even eliminating the bad choices doesn't mean you won't make wrong ones. You just won't know they're wrong until after they pass. Because, you know, like most things in life, right and wrong are variables you don't have any control over. And so the answers to what comes tomorrow are actually kind of a waste. That what's better is to simply see and understand and appreciate the beauty of how everything fits and refits together. Now, this time uh, that you were experiencing this, you said this lasted about a week, correct? A week in Earth time. <laughs> there, well, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, it was about a week, it was definitely a week here, a solid week, my body aged, but like I said, I was there, it's like no time passed at all, like time didn't exist, and they, like I said, I was even told, you're standing inside the eternity of a single moment. And I've heard that from, before from, from other people, that in the afterlife or uh, in a situation like that, that time really is, you know, a, a second there is like years and years here. So you basically, it's like time doesn't move. That's true. And, you know, I've, in, when I came back, I was you know really interested in quantum physics and I started studying it. I'll say that at a consumer grade level. And, you know, the whole idea is that at the speed of light, there is no time. And light, and so for light, time doesn't exist. So you kind of go with the idea that, you know, Really, we are light. We just happen to be light. They're right now living in very material bodies. When you go back in the direction of becoming light, you it would be very understandable that the passage of time or time itself would be different. So that's the best I've got there. So tell me about when you wake up, and, <laughs> and now you're you're back to your your not necessarily your old self because as we'll find out that's not going to be the case but you you wake up now and you're surrounded by loved ones and and, and now you know hey I'm back tell me about that instance well it's interesting i um i have no memory of my crash or really two days before like i did say i saw my propeller stop well yeah i did but other than that i actually had to go back through my emails and look for one with a timestamp on it that I remembered, and that was two days before my crash. When I came out of the coma, um, between probably still being in physical shock and, and then you know getting over all of the anesthesia or whatever that is they used to knock you out, I would say I really don't have much of a memory for about a week after I came out of that. So my next memory really was in another hospital that was strictly for my rehabilitation. And I was there for a little over a month. Um, and I remember I was just laying there one day and it's as if the memory just came right into my head. I mean, it's almost as if somebody put a, a you know, like a, a DVD in my head and hit play. And I remember just sitting there like, what the hell? You know, I'm like, what, what is this? You know, and it, it is as if it was just replaying in my head. And I was like, what in the world is this? And I even was wondering, could could it be possible I'm dead? And the idea of being in a hospital is me coming to grips with being dead and that somewhere the other shoe's going to drop. But, hey, who's in a hurry? Who's got anywhere to be? You know, let, let the guy take his time getting used to it. I really... I honestly wondered this. And um, the first person I talked to about it was 
my nurse, and she was fantastic. Her name was Jen, and she was definitely the A-team. And as I told her the story, she started crying. And I said, why are you crying? She said, because I don't want you to die. I said, why? And she said, because you're magical. I said, okay, you know, what's this all about? And honestly, on many occasions, I saw something that I would just say it's kind of, or felt something had something happen to me that I would say it's hard to explain other than when you come back from a really profound, I'll just call it a transformational experience, whether you've had to die for it or not. It's, it's like you bring back a little bit of that glow or the vibration or the radiation, hard, hard to say. But that's sometimes what would fill the room when I would be talking about it. And it definitely, definitely had an effect on people and a a very nice effect, I'll say. Generally, it makes people feel very connected to each other or something bigger than themselves. Um, All I can say is it feels great. So that was part of the coping with it. And and I still, I guess, was wondering for a while. But by the time I, I checked out, I, I think I was starting to understand it was more like a perhaps like an out of body experience. And I'd heard of near death experiences, but I hadn't really studied them much. So it was actually a few months later that I think it, it I came to understand that that's what I had. And of course, once you can give a name to it, you're all over it. You know, you're on the internet looking it up, you're finding out where's the nearest group of people and go talk to them and learn more. And so um, I was able to kind of follow those steps toward understanding what had happened and starting to write it down. And that was very important to me. In fact, I would say I felt very compelled to talk about it. It's understandable that a lot of people would come back and not say a word. You know, they might be called crazy or just not be around a very sympathetic audience or family. And I, it's like I had no choice. It's as if it was pushing itself out of me to talk to people about it. And so if you and I had met at a diner or on a Greyhound bus and we're sitting next to each other, I guarantee you within five minutes I'd have been talking to you about it. <laughs> so you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who might think I'm crazy. But, you know, look at everything else I've done in life and you could probably just say situation normal. So let me ask you this. when At the time that the accident happened. Were yeah. you a very religious or spiritual person at the time? I've always been spiritually inclined. Um, you know, when I was young, growing up in the South, you, you know, because of the environment I was in, I certainly you know gave religion a try. But I guess at the end, I it's like God took me aside, and he, like He was saying, "I'm glad you're asking questions about me." But if you walk the ways of man, you're going to come out with more questions. If you walk with me, we'll probably color outside the lines. And I'm sure we'll go places people say you shouldn't go to get your truth. But it'll probably be a more interesting ride. And that's the choice I made. And sure enough, here I am. (laughs) Do you feel like that gave you uh, another perspective of what you felt? Or do you still feel the same way now as you did before the accident when it comes to religion or spiritualism? That's such a good question, Jerry. Um, I, I hate to say it because it's admitting, you know, my own human failings. But before, I mean, I had read a lot of comparative religion, a lot of books and, and thought myself a pretty evolved person. But I would say it was after the near-death experience that I realized that it was mostly 
intellectual knowledge and ego. And, and, you know, just kind of looking down at a lot of other people and thinking, well, they're not very enlightened or, or they don't seem to be very interested either. But going here and being truly humbled, I mean, it was a very depersonalizing experience. If, if you'd walked up to me when I was in the in-between and said, well, if you stay any longer, you can't go back, I'd say, go back where? And if they said, go to your family, I'd say, what family? I had no memory of this place while I was there. And I... It's as if I almost had no ego, no personality. I was just a conscious thinking being on a mission. And that was, again, to, to kind of clean up the uh, clean up my future. And one of the things it said to me, it said, you prayed for something for which being here is the answer. And now the man who fell from the sky is not the same who flew into it. And I thought, wow, you know, that's, that is so true. But I, I definitely changed. I, I would say more accepting, more loving, more understanding. I mean, if I were to say, share my story with somebody and they just absolutely freaked out and said, you know, you're going burn in hell. It's not like I would really have a reaction to it. I would just understand that's their world and that's where they come from. And, and it's okay. In fact, I, one thing I definitely learned on the other side, all the stuff we get all wrapped around the axle about like who's sleeping with who and who's, you know, things like that. God could care less about. He really could. In fact, like I said, I wasn't able to see the all of the visions within my gears that were painful. Because what if one had said, oh, on this one, you're going to win the Powerball, but you're going to become a real jerk. Well, you can imagine most of us would say, I promise not to be a jerk. Let me win the Powerball. But it's like saying, no. That, so I wasn't given the opportunity to be tempted by the vision. I just could only go by the pain, which to me was an incredibly wise way to set it up. Um, so that's why I say it was incredibly humbling. And I mean, it's like having your butt handed to you. And, you know, I've even wondered, because I've asked people, what's the best version of yourself? Do you see it when you had some great professional achievement or some great personal achievement or when you have all your grandkids around your feet on a holiday? But someone one time said, you know, the best stories of the heroes we love are not the ones that were born with a silver spoon in their mouths. They're the ones who got knocked down over and over and over again, but they kept getting up and they kept pushing on. So maybe the best version of yourself is when you're getting the crap kicked out of you. Because you've got to pull it from within to move forward. And that is the story everyone can relate to. So I can see that. I can definitely. Resiliency is, is very attractive um, yeah. when, when you're looking yeah. at. Because everybody wants to know they've got the ability to get back up afterwards. So they want to see yeah. those stories. Um, you shared some stuff with me in the email about uh, relationships and you said that there's a very high percentage of people that are married that have a near-death experience that ends up leading uh, in breakups of their relationship. Tell me a little bit about that. It's true. Um, one of the largest organizations in the world, if not the largest one, is called IANDS, I-A-N-D-S, International Association of near-death studies, and they've compiled a bunch of statistics about this. First of all, they collect 
a lot of uh, near-death experience stories. So they, they themselves are a great store of knowledge in terms of <clears throat> seeing what what's common and what's different about all of our different experiences. And then the next thing that comes after that are what we call the after effects. And that's um, once you've started to understand what you've been through, you start to notice things like, you know, hey, why do light bulbs keep blowing out or you know, something silly like that? Or some people might discover they have the ability to heal others. You know, I mean, it can be all sorts of things. But definitely one of the challenges is realizing you're you're different and you react to things. And you don't know until you start to realize how you're reacting to things differently. And then you stop and think, wow, why am I reacting differently? And why do I say, not get angry about this thing, or what I, could I care less about that thing? And then the people around you start to notice, the ones who are closest to you first, right? And, they, and eventually, a spouse is going to say, where did my spouse go? Where did my husband go? Where did my wife go? Because, you know, you're, you're known, so much of what defines us are our, our fears and our hopes and our dreams. Well, what happens when those are stripped away? What if you live so much in the present now that, hey, you're not afraid of dying anymore. So, you know, what what's uh, suddenly losing your job or what's so oh, I can't make the mortgage. I mean, there, there are a lot of things that are put in big perspective once you've died and once you've come back. And then on the other side, hopes and dreams just don't seem to have the, the staying power that they did before because you realize how transient life is and that sometimes having fewer choices for those who perhaps are not making the best use of them could be called mercy. And so moving forward, you just have to try and figure yourself out and hope that everyone else around you can be patient while you're on that journey. But yeah, it's a high percentage rate. It's like, um, I think somewhere between 75 and 78%. So it's, it's, 25% higher than the national average, I think. And again, I I kind of, like in marriage therapy one day, my wife was complaining about ways, my bad habits. And I said, listen, I have to ask you a question. Have I I done any of this since my plane crash? And she said, no, you haven't. And I said, that's because that person died in the plane crash. This is what you have left. There's never going to be any going back. There's only going forward and building a new, and this is what you've got, and this is who I am, and I can't be anything else. Um, I am not the same as I was before. And then I asked a more blunt question. I said, you know, if our marriage vows say, till death do us part, well, what happens if one of us dies? No matter that you come back. Has the near-death experience broken our covenant? It's a question worth really thinking about. And, you know, of course, that, that feeds up to a lot of other things then. But but I will say this, um, we're, we're continuing on to basically rediscover who we both are in this changed trend, changed relationship. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of a lot of worse reasons people could come together and a lot of worse reasons people could fall apart. But as I said, she was a I would consider her to be a warrior um, as a single mom with three kids and then. Uh, waiting for me to come back from war, hopefully all in one piece. And then she was a warrior when I was in the hospital up there, giving the doctors hell every day to make sure I got the care I needed. So um, I feel very, very, very fortunate. And 
I don't expect it to be easy. Um, I mean, you know, dying isn't easy and coming back from death is harder, I'd say. But um, at least I, I think I have a strong companion to, to work it out with. So I got one final question for you, Jim. Is this incident that happened to you, is it a blessing or a curse? Blessing, absolutely. In fact, someone asked me a really good question. They said, hey, on the day you flew, did you have a bad premonition uh, that maybe you shouldn't go flying that day? And I said, well, you know, it was a test aircraft. I mean, test flying an experimental aircraft, so obviously you're going to be a little concerned, you know. But I said, as you ask that question, after my near-death experience, I'm reacting to it in a different way. And to me, the real question that you could ask is this. If you'd known what was going to happen, if you'd known you were going to crash and what was going to come after, would you have had the guts to get into the cockpit anyway? I said, now that's the question to ask. I said, I feel I know how I'm supposed to answer that. I don't know that I have the guts to answer it that way, but maybe just that much for now is okay. So, yeah, um, even though I, you know, walk with a little bit of a limp and, uh, you know, I guess have, you know, some other, uh, but very small and unnoticeable and totally, I don't mind having them body issues from the crash. Um, it was absolutely worth it. Absolutely worth it. And I, I thank God I've had it. You know, one of the uh, reasons I was so intrigued, uh, my dad and his cousin, this goes back uh 30 some years ago but they were in a plane crash they were both up in a uh, a glider and it stopped Mm. and as they were trying to glide it back down uh something basically happened where it just came straight nose down and um, just crashed like that and they both suffered multiple injuries both lived um both had several surgeries. I know my dad had a couple of vertebrae that were just crushed from the impact, uh, just basically shattered them into, into practically dust and uh, broke some ribs and stuff like that. And uh, so when I'm reading your story and, and I'm looking at some of the, you know, the picture of the plane that you were in when this happened and all that, obviously it was a different type of plane, but it just brought back the memories of getting that call. And uh, so I just found that intriguing that, Anytime somebody can can have a uh, a crash falling out of the sky and still survive is just amazing to me on all levels. Yeah, it, I mean, I can certainly appreciate it from that as well. And I just want to add one more thing. Um, it's something I'm, I'm looking at now a bit more, and that's you know um, when you're with when you're with another person who's had a, a near death experience, and you've got a, a good wavelength together. Sometimes it seems like some of the after effects amplify. And this woman I was working with, who was a screenwriter, uh, she'd had a shared near death experience when her father passed away. She actually, I guess you could say, put a foot over on the other side and went was able to go with him that far, and then came back. And one one night she. Um, was letting me know that she was driving to her boyfriend's house and listening to music on her phone until we started texting, and then all the audio started acting weird on her phone. She walks in her boyfriend's house, was talking on the phone to me. All of a sudden, his audio system goes crazy, and he made a joke because it was a joke by now. 
She says, tell Jen to stop. And then her son called her, who was visiting her from university at her apartment, and he called saying, Mom, the audio system's gone crazy, and it's even in the headphones. And then I remembered um, my wife had told me when her husband passed away in the car accident, as soon as he died, it was like, say, midnight or midnight 30, the, uh, her audio system at home suddenly turned on volume all the way up as if it were between stations, that big white noise. So she has experienced that as well. And, and I'll just tell you, I've had the most amazing, like electronic kind of, I, I've even seen my phone type out its own text. Um, it's just insane. I mean, and it just doesn't end. So who, who knows what's going to happen next? I mean, you blow up uh, transformers. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's a wild ride. It's incredible, and it's, and it's you know it's amazing how close your wife came to being a widow for the second time. I mean that's it's amazing that you know she wasn't a widow for the second time with what happened. Yeah, and and one of the kids told me one time they they heard her talking to the doctors out in the hall, and she said, "You know, I've already lost one husband. I can't lose two. And um, like I said, she um, I definitely attribute much of um, my recovery, not only to the wonderful medical care I got up there, but also to her being a warrior and just really um, fighting for me. If anybody is ever in a hospital like that, maybe due to an illness or an accident, having an advocate uh, fight for you, I would say is is huge. So if you can get that lined up before you ever need one, you'll probably be much better off as a result. <laughs> yeah. Jim, it's been a pleasure having you on. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm thrilled to death you uh, agreed to come on and tell your story. It's been as fascinating as as I thought it was going to be, and uh, I appreciate it. And I appreciate you listening to the show. Well, Jerry, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, and I uh, I totally enjoy what you're doing there. And I um, you know just keep keep doing what you're doing. Tell Tracy hi, and I'll look forward to listening to more shows. God bless. All right. Thank you, Jim. Good luck with everything. Okay. Good night. Thank you, Jerry. So how about that story? Well, that's all I can say. That's all you usually say. I know. So it's it was... just amazing. <laughs> it's an amazing journey this man's been on, for sure. And I found the the story especially fascinating because of the details mm-hmm. of like the giant egg the 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 wicker type or lattice as he said shape the gears that you could reach in and pull out the the person whether it be god or whoever speaking to him just i mean it was just every aspect of it was mm-hmm. creepy to a certain extent yeah. um a whole different perspective than I've ever heard from near death. Cause everybody was like, Oh, it was bright lights. And mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I thought I saw this, but I mean, this was like completely different. This was like, cause he said something about looking like an apoc- apocalyptic post apocalyptic town. <laughs> <What the hell? laughs> you might want to try that again. I might want to try that. Looking like a post apocalyptic. <laughs> It looked like stuff had been blown up years ago. There you go. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Post-apocalyptic. Darn you, Jim Bruton, and your fancy <laughs> words. <laughs> but anyway, we appreciate Jim 
being a listener. Oh my gosh, and, and we I thought are the story very was honored fantastic. to have him on. Yeah, yeah. amazing. And uh, hey, we will see you guys next week. Bye, guys. Hope you have a blessed week. Saturday, June 22nd, we destroyed Gina's Grill in Indianapolis, Indiana. It's the Bad Boys in Tracy. It's the Ohio Podcast, Mysterious Circumstances, and Hillbilly Horror Stories. And all the way from Australia, it's Natasha Anchor, a.k.a. Amber from the Hillbilly Horror House. Buy your tickets now and help us this place up. See you there. See you there. See you there. See you there.